Paul, are we recording? Yeah. Okay, good. Thanks. How big is the gospel that you say you believe? Do you find God's grace to be truly amazing toward yourself, toward others? Or maybe this is a more appropriate question for you this morning. Has the hopeful, joyful, confidence tank of your life run low? Are you resigned to being content with half or less? John Calvin once said, men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy. In other words, it's only when we properly understand how desperate a condition we were in and then recognize the depth of God's merciful response It's only when we understand those two things that our lives and our worship will be as full and as rich as they're meant to be. Before we dive into Romans 5, would you please join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the ways that you have revealed yourself to us through it. We know that you are a speaking God, so please speak to our hearts and our minds today from your word. Lord, I pray that you would grant me help to be accurate with your word and that your word would move in this place in each of our hearts by the power of your spirit. Lord, whether we have been Christians for many years or whether many of these things are still new to us, we pray that you would give us understanding. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we've come to chapter 5 of Romans. Martin Luther said, in the whole Bible, there is hardly another chapter which can equal this triumphant text. And John Piper has said, there is easily an entire year's worth of sermons just in Romans 5, 1 to 11. And we're going to try and tackle the whole chapter this morning. I won't be able to go into full depth with so many things that I've been able to learn just by studying or necessarily even what others have have, learned. discovered in God's word, but we are going to look at Romans 5. It's such a beautiful chapter with such an inexhaustibly rich gold mine as it is. What I'd like us to spend time fixed on this morning is this. What does it mean to boast in the Lord? And by boast, when we go back and look at what that original word meant, it means a humble, confident, joy-filled boast or rejoicing, actually. Today, Paul helps the Romans, and us as well, to see God's astounding grace, his abiding grace, and his abounding grace. And we're going to start by looking at God's astounding grace. We can boast in the glory of God because of the width of God's mercy and the depth of his grace. Uh, Now, a quick recap of Romans chapters 1 to 4. Paul has made the case that no one has an excuse out of the judgment that we are all due for our sin. All of us are sinners and continually falling short of the standards and commands of God. But God has made a way for us to be right with him, that anyone can be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes to us in Christ Jesus. And all of this is not by our efforts or works, but through faith in Christ alone. That's big, broad strokes, chapters 1 through 4. And so now we've come to chapter 5. 
Hopefully you still have your scriptures in front of you open. Verses 1 and 2 say, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So Paul begins saying, since we've been justified, which we looked at last week, justified by faith, and again, the word justified means to be declared innocent, we now have peace with God. There's no more animosity between us because of what Christ has done. And all of this, because this peace comes because we have placed our faith into Christ. We now stand or live in a state of grace. What does that mean? Well, standing in grace means, in part, we don't have to prove that we're worthy of God's love. We don't have to strive for that. We can't attain it anyway. We're counted as friends of God. The door of access to God's throne room is permanently opened for us. And we are free from the anxiety and the weight of thinking we need to earn God's favor. The account has been fully settled in Jesus We boast, we hold our head high, if you will, we confidently rejoice in God because we have been declared innocent. Because of our standing in grace, we don't live in a state of shame, but confidently declare what God has done for us. And I hope you notice the past tenses of the verbs that are used, that we have been justified that we now have or hold or possess peace between us and God, and we have gained access or entrance to grace is through faith. We boast in hope, a sure confidence in what has been secured for us by God. What does this look like? Um, So I've been an Arsenal supporter for many years, and this has been a great year for us. We're top of the table. We just might win the league. I mean, that that perennial hope just may come to fruition this year. I don't know if you noticed, but I said we and our. But who's done the work? I haven't done any of it. I've never spent days and hours out practicing intensely. I've never stepped onto a pitch or even laced up boots, actually. I've never nailed a scorpion kick. I've never won the match-winning goal in the 97th minute against Burnmouth, like a couple weeks ago. This year, I boast in Arsenal, not because of who I am. I boast in the victories they have won. When I'm bragging on Arsenal, I'm bragging on them, not myself. I'm sure there may be a little bit of me that says, I was smart enough to pick the right team. But when I boast in the glory of God, it's completely different. Well, not completely different. When I boast in the glory of God, I boast and rejoice in his victory that he has achieved by his mercy. So that's where it's the same. Not bragging on myself, I'm bragging on God. And it's not by any goodness or merit I think I can bring. I can't even boast in saying that I was wise enough to choose him. He came and sought me. I boast that the God of all things knew that I was dead in my sin and needed a Savior. So he came in Christ Jesus, lived a perfectly obedient life, was arrested, mocked, humiliated, unjustly convicted, tortured, and brutally executed in my place. As we
we read last week, he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. My sins have not only been removed, I've been credited with Christ's righteousness. I've had my identity changed from enemy of God to beloved, adopted child of God who will share in Jesus' inheritance and everlasting life. Again, last week, chapter 4, we read, Where then is boasting? It's excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. See, genuine Christians should be humbly grateful, not smug or arrogant. Our boast, our humble rejoicing confidence, is Jesus. Let's jump over to verses 6 through 8 as we continue to look at the depth of God's love in saving grace. These verses really are, I think, the heart of chapter 5, and again, a great reminder of why it's called good news. The reason that we should be utterly amazed and astounded by the gospel. And these verses are some of my favorite in all of scripture. Verse 6, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is so immense that he demonstrates it in this way. Even in our state of sin, Christ died for us to bring us into a state of grace. That is astounding. Sometimes people may say Christianity is for the weak-minded or it's a crutch to help us get through life. Sometimes as Christians we fall into the lie that we're good people who just needed a little tweaking to be better people. But the truth is, the scriptures reveal we were dead in our sins. So our faith is not a crutch merely to help us in our weaknesses. Our faith is more like a defibrillator that brings us back to life. Jesus didn't come to make good people better. He came to bring the dead back to life. Ephesians 2 reminds us of this too, where Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but that because of God's mercy, we have been made alive with Christ, that we've been raised up to be seated with him, and that all of this is a gift so that we can't boast. Sounds an awful lot like Romans 5, doesn't it? Genuine Christians should be humbly grateful, not smug or arrogant, because our boast is in Christ and about Christ and not ourselves. I once heard a Christian believer say of a prominent politician, I want to be at the front of the line on Judgment Day to see her get hers. Christians, this should never be our attitude. If we rightly understand God's grace, this will never be our mindset. We should yearn for those who are far from God to come to everlasting life through faith and repentance in Christ. 2 Peter 3.9 reminds us, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, a lot of times we think of that 
in light of ourselves. He wants everyone. Oh, good, I'm included in that. But how big is everyone? How big is the gospel that you understand? What about someone who's truly evil? Can they find forgiveness in Christ? Would they be allowed entrance into heaven at the end of their life? One of the most shocking, gruesome, and notorious serial killers ever in the United States was a man called Jeffrey Dahmer. His crimes are genuinely unspeakable, especially in a worship service. And a current docudrama has brought his story back into public awareness. I'm not endorsing watching that, but I'm just um, reminding you that it's out there. But there is a part of his story that I do want to share. If you're not familiar, over the course of 13 years, so from 1978 to 1991, Dahmer took the lives of 17 victims. He was arrested in 1991 and imprisoned just 72 miles from where Rachel and I went to university in the United States. While in prison, he received some Christian literature and began to read it, eventually wanting to be baptized. Now, if you were called on as a Christian to talk to him, what would you say? Would you even go? What would you say if he asked you if he could be forgiven even after all these heinous crimes and go to heaven? minister named Roy Ratcliffe received the call informing him that he was to go up to the prison to meet Jeffrey Dahmer because Jeffrey Dahmer needed to be baptized. In his book, Roy described how nervous both of them were to meet each other for the first time. Upon meeting him, Jeffrey said to him, I was very nervous about meeting you today. I was afraid you would come and tell me that I couldn't be baptized because my sins are too evil. But Roy assured Jeffrey that that wasn't the case, and to Roy's surprise, Jeffrey seemed excited to talk about baptism. Roy said that Jeffrey had a bunch of questions about it, and he was paranoid that Roy wouldn't say the right words and that the baptism wouldn't be done correctly. Once again, Roy assured him that everything would be okay, and a couple of weeks later, on Tuesday, May the 10th, 1994, Jeffrey Dahmer was baptized by Roy Ratcliffe. During the baptism, Roy said that as he lifted Jeffrey's head out of the water, he said to Jeffrey, welcome to the family of God. And he described Jeffrey responding with what a smile of gladness and surprise before saying, thank you. Now this baptism made the headlines and a lot of people figured that this baptism was the end of Jeffrey's faith. But what a lot of people didn't know was that following the baptism, Roy continued to see Jeffrey every Wednesday to answer Jeffrey's questions about Christ and also to study the Bible with him. In doing so, he described Jeffrey as seeming sincere and being eager to learn more about Jesus. In fact, on multiple occasions, in the months following the baptism, Jeffrey expressed that he was upset because in multiple interviews with the media, he would always mention his new faith in Jesus, but they always left that part out when they were airing his interviews. However, in his interview with Dateline NBC, they did air a clip about him talking about how things have changed once he stopped believing in evolution and started believing in Jesus Christ. If a person doesn't think that there, there is a God, to be accountable to, then then what's what's the point of, of trying to uh, modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? Uh, that's how I thought anyway. And uh, I've since come to believe that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is truly God, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're the only true God. I've come to since come to believe that uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true creator of uh, the heavens and the earth. It just didn't just happen. And uh, I have accepted him as my Lord and Savior. And I believe that I, as, long, as well as everyone else, will be accountable to him.
But as he stayed in prison, things started to take an unexpected turn for the worse. Just a couple of months after his baptism, in July of 1994, a fellow prison mate attempted to kill Jeffrey while he was sitting in a pew during a prison church service. However, the man was unsuccessful in killing Jeffrey, and Jeffrey said that he was thankful to be alive so that way he could continue to talk to the other prisoners about the gospel message. In the following months that he remained in prison, he apparently continued to talk with the other prisoners about faith and also left them gospel tracts as well. Roy continued to see Jeffrey each week for a few more months until he learned of Jeffrey's unexpected death. On November 28th, just seven months after his baptism, Jeffrey Dahmer and another man were murdered by a fellow prison mate while they were cleaning the restroom in the prison jail. Following his death, both Christians and non-Christians alike were uncomfortable with the thought that Dahmer could be in heaven right now after living such an awful life. It's hard to think of someone less deserving of eternal punishment than Jeffrey Dahmer, and so the thought that he might have escaped eternal torment feels unfair and unjust, and it is. As a Christian myself, when I think about the main message of Christianity, I understand that it's all about how God came to save undeserving sinners with the free gift of His grace. And I know that I'm one of those sinners that didn't do anything to deserve His grace, and we could say the same for someone like Jeffrey Dahmer. But, I mean, I get it. It's still hard to see Jeffrey in that same category since we could easily classify him as the worst of all sinners, and given Roy's book, it seems that Jeffrey also saw himself to be the worst of all sinners. But, do you know who else saw themselves as the worst of all sinners? It was a man who murdered an unknown amount of Christians for their faith, and his name was Paul the Apostle. In the Bible, Paul even said, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I would show mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So when Paul says this, it's kind of convicting because it makes me realize that the only way that we can get hung up on believing that somebody else isn't deserving of heaven is if, at some level, we believe that we're more deserving than they are. But the Bible is clear that none of us deserve heaven because none of us can even live up to our own standards, let alone God's. All we can do is accept salvation as a free gift. So when it comes to Jeffrey, of course, only God knows his heart and if he was truly genuine or not. Of course, I don't know if he was sincere or not, but what I do know is that if God's grace is big enough to save a mess like me, and if it's big enough to save a murderer like Paul, then of course, it's also big enough to save someone like Jeffrey Dahmer as well. There's a lot more to that video that if you'd like to see, um, I can get you the link after service. But what I want you to think about is this. Once again, how big is the gospel that you believe? How deep is God's grace? How wide is his mercy? Is it big enough to bring in even the worst of sinners? You know, in the video, John mentioned the Apostle Paul. And in Philippians, Paul talks about how everything he had going for him in his pedigree he regarded it as refuse, or as the message translates it accurately to the original language, like dung. See, we need to remember that our sins are heinous before God. I know that I need the saving grace and mercy of God just as much as any serial killer. And why do I say that? Because the Bible says that. Romans 3 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 59, 2 tells us our sins have separated us from God. James 2 that I shared with the kids earlier. Whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And Isaiah 53 
all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, way, and the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. No one can stand forgiven before God apart from a wholehearted, sincere faith in Christ. Not Dahmer, not Nelson Mandela, not Mother Teresa, not David Attenborough. No clergy can stand before him on their own merit. Not you and not me. We need Christ. A hymn we often sing rightly says, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Do we believe it? Do we live like we believe it? Or what about when we sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Christians, we rejoice that the gospel is this astounding, this amazing, that forgiveness in Christ is available to anyone, even to those of us in this room. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We boast in Christ. We are humbly grateful, not smug or arrogant. We boast in Christ, about Christ, and we share that news with others who would know him as well. Our humble, rejoicing confidence, our boast, is Jesus. Going on, Paul also speaks of God's abiding grace, a grace that sustains us through all seasons of life. So we can boast or rejoice at all times because of our certain hope. Paul looks specifically at how people can rejoice in trials and times of suffering. Verse 3, he says, Not only so, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, Paul's going to devote an entire chapter to this, chapter 8, and Andy will unpack that in a few weeks' time. But what I want you to see is that the word translated glory here is actually the same as the word translated boast or rejoice in verse 2. We can hold our heads high. We can humbly, confidently rejoice in the midst of our sufferings because of what God, who is trustworthy, has promised the crucible of suffering shows the proof of genuine faith, this trust that leads to patience, demonstrating our hope is not in this world. It's in what God has promised. It's like a, a trust fund, maybe, if you will, that it has been set aside and kept for us. It cannot be touched. God is keeping it secure for us. The psalmist says, because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you. It's that type of rejoicing in the midst of suffering. When the Bible uses the word hope, it's, it's not like we use it in English like a, a wistful um, wish that we hope will come about in the future. These precious promises are held secure for us by God. And at just the right time, he will bring us into the inheritance God has for us. Hope does not put us to shame, the scriptures say. If we're hoping in our own goodness, we would be ashamed to stand before God's throne. But because we're depending on Christ, we can be confident. We're not depending on something weak, inadequate, or helpless. But we're trusting in his life, his death, and his resurrection 
alone. So even in the darkest times, we can rejoice that God's character and promises are true because he has demonstrated his faithfulness over and over again in history and in our lives. Let me remind you, if you're in the midst of really difficult suffering this morning, God is with you. He is still Emmanuel. You might be in the midst of trial or suffering because of someone else's sin, because of your own actions. Sometimes it's just the fallout of living in a sin-stained and broken world. But in your times of suffering, pour out your heart to God in lament. Bring him your pain and frustration. He's not someone who can't handle it. The Psalms are full of examples of this. And then remind yourself of God's promises and declare your trust in him. Ask God to be true to his word and allow you to know the reality that his love has been poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. This verse says he pours it into our hearts. That's something God intended for us to feel not simply acknowledge in our brains. So in the midst of suffering, rejoice that he has something so much better planned and he has invited you to be there with him. Rejoice that because of Christ's work, you can be assured that you can be in heaven with him. The better country lies ahead for those of us who believe, the heavenly one, where there is no sorrow or pain, or crying, or death, where there is everlasting joy. So we can rejoice even in the midst of our trials, rejoicing in what God has done for us in Christ. Verses 9 through 11, Paul goes on and says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son, How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul is saying, look, if being fully forgiven our sins and spared God's wrath because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross is utterly amazing, think how mind-blowing it is that through his resurrection, We will share an eternal life in the future and can be a changed people in the here and now and have an ongoing relationship with God. I hope some of these things are beginning to just blow your mind again about how amazing our God is. Lastly and quickly, Paul speaks of God's abounding grace. He finishes chapter 5 by reminding his readers of how extraordinarily amazing the gift of salvation is as he speaks of God's abounding grace. We don't have time to fully dive into it, but I do want to skim through it. Verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. Now, just as a very quick aside, because I believe this is important, according to Paul, And according to Jesus, in Matthew 19, Adam and Eve were real people. And what they did still affects the world to this present day. The Apostle Paul regarded Genesis 3 as historically true. Now, showing the evidences for that could be a whole night session. But Paul and Jesus both accept it as history, so much so 
that it grounds our theology of salvation. He goes on later in 15 to say that the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? The actions of Adam earned judgment, and this was passed on to all people as a natural consequence. We may not all have sinned in the exact same way that Adam did, but we all chose sin over God, and we've earned its consequences. What we've earned... Our wages, if you will, are death, judgment, punishment, and separation. Yet God extends us a gift. And hold on to that word because it'll come back next week in chapter 6. A gift isn't something that you earn. A gift is dependent on the generosity of the giver. It's This gift that Paul is talking about is not like a gift that you give a dear friend or family member. No, this gift was given to self-glorifying, rebellious, destructive enemies of God in open hostilities toward him, rejecting his relationship and rule. Yet Paul says, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many Paul talks of it as an overflow, and that the word in the Greek is, it's super abounding. It's extravagantly generous. This is the love that God has for you in Christ, that even in the midst of our sinfulness, he would pour out his love. He's, ma- he's demonstrating the magnitude of his love, this super abounding grace in the face of sinfulness that makes it possible for even someone like Jeffrey Dahmer to be forgiven for even someone like me to be forgiven. It's a forgiveness that you and I need just as desperately as anyone to atone for our sins. His gift is greater because we deserve judgment, and none of us deserve his gift. I hope you see how extravagant God's grace and forgiveness are. They are multitudes greater than what we deserve for the sin that we have chosen. God's gift is forgiveness, new life, and eternal life through Jesus. And his gift was paid for by Christ Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Because God's mercy and grace are superabounding towards sin and sinners, does this mean that we should just carry on in sin so that it shows off God's goodness even more? Again, that'll be answered next week in chapter 6. So how big is the gospel that you believe? Has the hopeful, joyful, confidence tank of your life run low? Then see once again God's astounding and abiding and abounding grace to you. Don't you want to boast in our magnificent Lord and God? The gift God has given us, who were rebellious, wretched, and sinful, his gift of forgiveness, his ongoing presence, and eternal life and glory, his superabounding grace to us, allow us to hopefully, joyfully, confidently rejoice in all seasons until he returns. So let's boast in our Lord. Join me as I pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, pray that you would help us to know and delight in your grace and your mercy, which you have superaboundingly poured out on us. Thank you that forgiveness is available to all who would turn in faith and repentance to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Forgive us for thinking we should be able to determine who has the right to be offered forgiveness. 
Cause us to be a people who can rejoice even in the pain of suffering, knowing we have a sure and glorious inheritance yet to come. Strengthen those here who are currently in the thick of suffering, Lord. Stir our hearts to share this astounding news with those we come across in our everyday lives. And all this, that you would receive the honor and glory you deserve. And this we pray in our great Redeemer, Jesus' name. Amen.